Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 3rd, 2015. This is episode 1530 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you. I've got longtime community member David Haight on the line. He's going to be with us in just a bit. He's a professional pilot previously with the airlines and a business and a business jet manufacturer. He's now a contract pilot for customers all over the world, but we're not really here to talk about planes today. We're going to be talking about alternative fuel vehicles and his experience as a self-professed techno geek. He investigates a wide range of topics and integrates them into his homestead and permaculture design. And uh, he's also a guy that's you know driven several different alternative vehicles and has his opinion now based on his lifestyle over the last 10 years. So we'll bring him on in just a bit. Before we do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. I, I, I think silver and gold should be part of your investment insurance plan. And why do I think that? Because if you went to any member of the Federal Reserve Board and said, what is the plan for the value of the dollar over the next 10 years? They would say for the value of the dollar to be decreased through inflation, planned, managed inflation. They wouldn't apologize for it. They'd try to explain to you why it's a good thing for you and why it means that taking on debt's a good thing for you. That's the plan. Uh, they're good at it. They've lost about 98% of the value of the dollar since 1913 when they took over. So... I think they plan to continue to do what they've always done. And do you know what you could do today? Today, with one silver quarter, 1964 or earlier, you could buy more gasoline than you could buy in 1964 with a quarter. As long as it's a silver quarter for 1964 and back. If you priced a home, let me tell you, I want you to really think about this. If you priced an average three-bedroom American home in silver quarters today, in silver quarters, you could buy more house with the silver and silver quarters today than you could buy for the value of the quarters in 1964 before they changed the money and took the silver out of it. What does that mean? It means that silver holds its value. Gold holds its value. They tell us the truth about the market over time. There's ups and downs. There's wide swings in them. It's not something you buy to sell tomorrow unless you're trading. And then I suggest ETFs, honestly. But for long-term insurance, nothing has the track record. That's why I recommend you keep 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. And when I need it, do you know where I go? I go to JM Bullion because, well, they take good care of you. They're the kind of small company that I want to deal with. I just priced uh, Silver Eagles. From them versus Atmex. And Atmex is probably the biggest, most well-known silver house in the country. And JM, on a roll of 20, beat them by over $30. Plus, free shipping. Plus, as long as you're spending over $300, they give you another $10 off if you're an MSB member. JM Bullion, what more do I need to say? Check them out today. Next up today, the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason, man. You know, Jeff is really a great guy, and I've been picking on Jeff by calling him Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, for about four and a half years now. I think he'll have his fifth year as our sponsor. This, well, I think he just did. Five years of Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. And uh, I don't know why I do that other than I just love Jeff as a person, and I pick on the people I love. But I'm serious when I say, why would you buy your Berkey or your parts for your Berkey from anybody but Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason? 
It, it doesn't really make sense that you would go to the guy at the gun show who started carrying Berkey's last week, who doesn't know their policies, who you know doesn't have a track record of customer service like a maniac like Jeff does, doesn't have the knowledge, doesn't have the pricing. It just doesn't make sense at all. So check out Directive 21 today, and if you already have a Berkey, when you need new parts for it, new filters, get them from Jeff. When you get your filters, get the new Black Berkey Primer. It's so awesome. It saves you so much time and energy, especially if you have one of the new faucets that doesn't work with the washer like the old ones did. Uh, it's totally worth the money. You'll buy it one time, you'll put it in a drawer, and every time you put new filters in, which will be once every several years, you'll pull it out and be glad you have it. And check out his other cool stuff at Directive21.com. And again, it's Directive21.com, not spelled out 21. Anyway, next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode of the year. It's 1530. I have four for you today. Death by Boiling and the Vanity of Hate Crimes. I also have The Evil Saturday Flood. I have The Lutheran Confessions of by Faith Alone. And I have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Turtles in Time. Yes, in 1530, the Mutant Ninja Turtles went there. Anyway, I'm going to read Death by Boiling and the Vanity of Hate Crimes, because I think it has the greatest lesson for us in today's day and age out of the four. Though they're all fantastic, and you might want to check out tspwiki.com today for the year 1530. There'll be a link in the show notes. Death by Boiling and the Vanity of Hate Crimes. Murder and attempted murder were once considered the same thing, and thus judgment was simple and severe. Since that time, distinctions have been made. Normal murder is where someone actually dies and is punished by drawing and quartering and hanging. Well, that sucks. This year, <laughs> I guess it sucks for you if you did it. Uh, this year, an additional distinction is made in English law. If a person of sound mind murders another by way of poison, the punishment shall be death by boiling. It is a slow death and reflects the distaste that the king, Henry VIII, has of such a devious means of killing. He equates it with treason. In other words, he takes it personally. I think it's because somebody was trying to poison him to death. I think that's why well, he had tasters that didn't really want the job. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug. In the modern day, law demands a punishment that reflects the disapproval of society. Use of crack cocaine is punished more severely than powdered cocaine. Drunkenness by alcohol is punished differently than by marijuana. Your attitude counts, too. Murder in the heat of passion is different from a carefully planned murder. However, hate crime is judged on the assumption that if you show any evil, that you are totally evil. Like a radio with a volume of a full blast. No in-between. People have called me names, threatened me, but I never sensed that they hated me for my race or religion. They just wanted to get my goat. FYI, I kept my goat. My father suffered real racism. What I experience is a normal friction of society. I don't flatter myself that I suffer what my father did many years ago. In comparison, this is a cakewalk. Wow, a lot of people of uh, different uh, ethnic groups and minorities could learn something from Alex's attitude. Don't flatter yourself that you suffered the slings and arrows of your parents and grandparents. Because you don't. I, I like that. Um, but the hate crime thing, the reason I selected this was... Um, recently I had somebody make the only case that's ever been made to me about hate crimes that made me actually go, okay, follow your own advice, pause and examine the contention. Uh, maybe you're wrong, even though you don't think you are. The case was this. The purpose of hate crime legislation is supposed to be as such. If I decide I'm going to burn down black churches and I start burning down black churches, not only am I committing arson and potentially risking lives and property and doing all the horrible things that that arson entails, um, 
But since I am specifically targeting, let's say, black churches, that means that the black church community and black people in general have something additional to fear. In other words, I've terrorized them. Okay. Under our Constitution, if that is the case and you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, you can add a crime, you can add a charge to what I'm charged with when you catch me. It's called terroristic threats. You see, and there might be a different charge depending on exactly how any one of these so-called hate crimes is committed. But if it's constitutional, I'm just saying, then you have a charge to go with it. To be able to just stack it on there is unconstitutional and bullshit, as is some of the other things that I think Alex mentioned. So we're going to punish you more severely for using or selling crack cocaine than powdered cocaine. Will this make sense in what universe? We will put you in jail for the use of marijuana, but alcohol is totally okay. It was illegal, but then we made it legal again with some papers. And we call it a free society. I think, I just think, we would go back to being better off if we went to a belief system that until such time as I have victimized somebody... And I have victimized somebody by infringing on their rights to life, liberty, and or property. There is no crime. If I victimized you because your feelings were hurt, there is no crime. If the victim is society as a whole, there is no crime. You have to be able to point to someone and say, this man or this woman's actions specifically harmed this individual's rights to life, liberty, and property in this manner, and thereby has committed a crime by having a victim. What a great way to run a society. Now, I have to say something about this English law that was quite horrific and doing sadistic shit like boiling people to death. is pretty damn sadistic. I bet it made you think twice before you poisoned someone. I don't agree with it. I don't think we should be drawing and quartering people. Um, I don't... I, I, I have a hard time admitting this, but I'm not exactly a fan of the death penalty anymore. Because way too many people that have been on death row have come off of death row having been cleared of all charges and shown malfeasance of prosecution. So I'm not comfortable with the state executing people. I'm not opposed to the death penalty in principle. I'm opposed to it in practice, if that makes sense. Our system does not allow me to trust the state with said power. All right? Um, but again, I think if there was a fair system and you killed somebody, I'd prefer that you just go away and take a dirt nap and not ever be a burden to society again. I, I agree with the principle. Um, I also have a little bit of an understanding, though, with, okay, you shouldn't get off easier just because you weren't good at what you did. So if I kill you and the penalty is death, and if we had a state that actually had liberty and justice for all, that might make sense, just saying, let's say we did. And I killed you, and they say, okay, you killed them. And it's clear-cut, I did it, and it was premeditated, and I took your life. All right, And then they strap me into an electric chair or put a bullet in my head or whatever they do to make sure I'm good and dead. Throw me in a hole and bury me and let the worms eat me and compost me to the earth. Good to go. All right. Here's what I'm saying. If I try to kill you, if my intent was for you to die, And by some miracle or through my own incompetence, you managed to survive. I actually think the crime is equivalent. This is what I would say, though. I think then the victim can speak. And it would be interesting if the attempted murder charge 
had the penalty, again, in a state that was just enough to be trusted with it, which we don't have, um, <laughs> of death, but yet the intended victim could say, I don't want this person executed. That would be interesting. We might learn something from that. My take by Jack Spierko. But again, those of you are going to write and tell me how important the death penalty is, it ain't in this country the way that it's used and with the malfeasance that we've seen, it's obscene. Right here in Fort Worth and Dallas, Texas, we've seen dozens of people cleared of murder charges, brought home off of death row after de a decade or more in federal prison with their lives ruined and destroyed, with conclusive evidence that the prosecutors practiced with malfeasance and with complete and total reasonable doubt now that that individual ever had anything at all to do with that murder. So, in that case... It's not that I am opposed to the concept of, let's say, an eye for an eye. I'm opposed to the state being the one to decide whose eye to pluck out. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic. Oh, no, wait a minute. We got the Bob Wells Plan of the Week. It is Tuesday after all, and I have for you today something cool, something I like, something I have on my property. I think you should, too. If you're in Zone 5 or higher, you can grow it. You can grow it all the way in the south. You can grow in northern Pennsylvania and parts of New York State and all the way up until you get into like the really ass, cold ass parts of South Dakota and Wisconsin and stuff like that, and you might still be able to grow it. The Dolgo Crab Apple is a widely adaptable from Zone Spot and extremely cold hardy with, so if you had good solar aspect and heavy mulch, it might survive even colder zones. This tree originated in Siberia. The crab apple was imported from Russia by plant breeder Dr. Niles Hansen of South Dakota and introduced in 1897 to the U.S. market. Dolgo in Russian means long and refers to the shape of the fruit. It's kind of grape-shaped. The highly flavored crimson fruit is about one inch in diameter. It's olive-shaped and rich in pectin. It's a vigorous tree, grows upright with spreading willowy branches, has a reddish-green dense foliage. It's resistant to scab, cedar apple rust, mildew, and fire blight. This is a very hardy apple. It ripens in late August or early September. It's excellent for jellies. It also makes a great cider, either as a blend or as rose-toned, if you use it as a single variety because it's got a reddish flesh. It has high sugar content of about 18%, and if you make a standalone cider out of it, it'll ferment to 6.5% to 7% alcohol by volume. Pretty stout stuff for cider. You can find this plant and more at BobWellsNursery.com. BobWells Nursery specializes in anything edible. Fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. It helps support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. To thank you for your service, please email me. Also, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Email me before, not after you join. Service discount subject line. I will send you a discount code to save you even more money on a great product. Couple announcements. I've heard from a lot of people about permaculture voices. Are we going to do any meetups? Keep an eye on the TSP blog. Uh, when I get out there, we'll figure out what we're doing because I don't know the area. I don't know the places, etc. And each day, if we're doing a meetup somewhere, I'll post on the blog just, hey, we're all meeting at. So just go to your smartphone. And remember, when you're on your phone, if you want to visit the website, I have a shortcut for you. TSPC.co. TSPC.co. And uh, you'll get uh, you'll get straight kicked over to the website, so you can save typing time on your smartphone. But you sh you should have it bookmarked. I'm just saying. Anyway, additionally, I wanted to let you know, and I'll be putting out a post about this today. I have some really cool hard drives 
Uh, they're 8 gig titanium hard drives, USB, that have a whole bunch of cool stuff on them, including the presentation that I'll be giving at Permaculture Voices, and including the presentation I gave last year, and including a bunch of other presentations, and a lot of other cool stuff. And I'll be selling them at Permaculture Voices for 25 bucks. I don't present till Saturday, late in the day. I don't want to bring any of them home. So as long as you promise not to watch the presentation I'm going to do Saturday, I will start selling them to people that just walk up to me and go, hey, I want one of those hard drives. Uh, or USB drives on uh, any time at Voices. So I'll have them with me, and they will be for sale, 25 bucks a piece. Uh, if you ordered the drive with shipping and all, it would probably cost you 10, 12 bucks to buy one of these little cool drives um, to to get one. So you know, consider the data being 15 bucks, and you get the drive for for the price you'd pay for it if you bought it on your own. And it's a cool little drive. It's the one I've settled on for doing this with. And I'm just hoping I get the price break maybe by next year where I can start getting bigger drives because, frankly, they're almost full. I've crammed so much on them, they're almost full. Um, Yeah, so the other thing, since I'm going to be at Voices starting tomorrow, and I'm not coming back till Monday morning, there will be no survival podcast between now and Tuesday. So Tuesday... Of next week, which is Tuesday the 10th, TSP uh, will return. In the meantime, consider listening to past episodes. If you are trying to get your shit together, I'd recommend you do something. I'd recommend you look for the tag Lifestyle Design or Lifestyle Planning and listen to some of those. Those are some of the best TSPs we've ever done on that. Of course, you can always click on the tag Permaculture if that's your bag and you're not able to be with us. Have voices in California, and you'll find all the stuff we've ever done on that. And if you just have a hanker and hear about something, we've probably talked about it. There is a search box. Stick that word in there, and you might be surprised at what you found. And if all else fails, there's a random button link. You click that, and it'll just take you to a random post. You might get something like, oh, I don't know, a blog post or a video or something like that. Just click it again, then, until you find an episode that you want to listen to. It's a cool way to pop around the site and find what you're looking for. Anyway, with that, I want to uh, go ahead and bring our special guest on. Again, his name is David Haight. He is uh, a pilot by trade and a techno geek uh, by admission, and he's here today to talk to us about alternative fuel vehicles. Thanks, Jack. Hey, I've got you on today to talk about alternative fuel vehicles and, and electric vehicles and all kinds of cool stuff, biodiesel. Uh, but before we get into that, could you just kind of tell people, like, what do you do professionally and how did you get there? Are you doing whatever you, you know, as a kid in grade school dreamed of growing up and doing, or did you kind of fall into it, follow a crooked path like most of us do? Well, I'd have to say my path was a lot straighter than most people's. I actually took my first uh, flying lessons before I was born and knew I wanted to be a pilot for a long, 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 long time. And so I really focused on that all through school, all through high school. I actually went to college to get a degree in it. Sure enough, spent some time with uh, some airlines, with a business jet manufacturer, and now I'm a freelance pilot operating business jets for customers all over the world. So my path wasn't really crooked in terms of career path, but in terms of preparedness and sustainability understandings, it was a little bit of a, a character arc, let's say. I started out uh, standard suburbia, Chicago, you know, just about as white bread of an existence as you could imagine, and really didn't understand how fragile a lot of the systems of support in the world are until I really started asking the question, you know, where does all my jet fuel come from for, uh, you know, flying airplanes all over the world, of course, it takes lots and lots and lots of fuel. So I started really asking the question, where's all this energy come from? 
which led me to understand the concepts of peak oil and that kind of stuff, which then led me to figure out how much energy goes into food, which then led me to figure out, hey, we need to solve these problems and found permaculture a lot, kind of like you did later, later on in life a bit. But I see the permaculture is a lot of great solutions for these kind of things. So in terms of my own preparedness arc, yeah, that was a bit of a crooked path too. Cool. So let's start out with um, electric vehicles, right? So the other day I was uh, helping my son buy his first, you know, new car uh, down at Nissan, and I saw this thing for a Nissan Leaf. And uh, mm-hmm. I looked at that and said, you know, if I drove 15 miles to work and back every day, yeah, you know, that might actually make sense with you know with good credit and we can get one of those things on a lease for it. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit better than a golf cart, I guess, and I can plug it in, it'll charge up. But I'm thinking, like, so where do I plug this thing in if I'm not at home? Do I need something special to plug it into? How long does it take to charge? How do I find a place to charge it? You know, if I'm driving down the road in my my big, you know, gas gu- diesel-guzzling F-350, every other exit, there's a place to fill up. So what is the person with these electric, you know, not even hybrids anymore, but full-on electric vehicles do? Sure. And the first thing I want to try to get straight is that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different acronyms out there about, you know, they got a, a PHEV this and PZEV that. And, you know, if you start going off into the sales and marketing material, you're going to see these acronyms. And I want to try to distill it down to just three simple categories for you. There's going to be all electric vehicles. For example, you mentioned the Nissan Leaf. That one has no gasoline engine generator, backup generator in it at all. It's entirely battery electric. There's a lot of plug-in hybrids coming out now that are partially battery, partially gasoline engine. And then, of course, we're all familiar with the mild hybrids like a Toyota Prius or, uh, you know, Toyota's got a whole bunch of other models of, of hybrids out there. Okay, so that's a mild hybrid where mostly it's gasoline and the battery and the uh, engine, uh, excuse me, battery and electric motor are just stepping in for uh, small demands, right? So all electric vehicles, obviously, you're going to have to do more planning about how far can I go, where are the charging stations, things like that. Now, most of the charging can be done at home. For example, my Chevy Volt, which is a plug-in hybrid, I've done almost all of my charging simply from your standard 120-volt wall outlet socket. Uh, it comes with an adapter. It's basically a really smart extension cord that you plug into the wall, you plug the other end into the car, car goes beep, starts charging, and you come back eight, 10 hours later, battery's full, you're good to go, no planning there. There are uh, apps out there now and associated websites. Uh, my personal favorite is called plugshare.com where it'll show you the location. There's a description as to how to find the thing. Uh, people leave reviews as to whether the station was working very well or not, or maybe someplace to uh, walk and go get something to eat while it's charging, that kind of stuff. The key to understanding the, the public charging, though, is the levels of charging. There's level one, again, wall socket, 120 volt, kind of slow. Uh, you're going to get about five miles of range per hour that it's plugged in to the wall. There's level two charging. 200-volt, 40-volt AC power, kind of like a dryer socket or a RV hookup out at the, you know, your RV campground, you're going to get about 40 miles of range per hour that you're plugged into something like that. So a little bit better, but still kind of slow for most people. 
there's level three charging, which is actually where the electric grid power is converted into DC power by this big box sitting kind of by the parking station. So it's delivering around 500 volts DC, in which case you're going to get up to about 400 miles of range per hour that it's plugged in. The fastest of these, of course, is the, the Tesla supercharger. And uh, just coincidentally, I happen to be staying at a hotel here in Bozeman, Montana, where we've got a brand-new Tesla supercharger sitting over there in the parking lot. It's interesting because, like, so at that range, a lot of these vehicles don't even go 400 miles. So that makes sense to me now with, like, the Leaf. So I was looking at it, and they were showing, you know, they had, like, one sitting in the showroom, and they had a plug plugged into it, which, by the way, probably for the benefit of making you feel more comfortable, looked an awful lot like a gas pump, the way it was designed <laughs> or plugged in. It looks so much like a gas pump plugged into it. But they were saying, basically, you can fully charge it in about 30 minutes with one of these stations, And I guess that's because, well, if you could do 400 miles in an hour of charging and the thing will go 200, you, you, once it's charged, it's charged. It's like filling up a tank. You, you can't put more into it. Yeah, correct, correct. So, you know, these folks have done, you know, coast-to-coast drives on Teslas where, you know, you stop every 150, 200 miles where your bladder would kind of need you to stop anyway, uh, plug in, you know, get a sandwich, walk around a little bit, stretch your legs, come back and, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got enough uh, range to make it to the next station. And fortunately, there's a string of these stations coast to coast now, uh, both the Tesla and the, the two open um, standards for level three. Now, unfortunately, level three, we've got a little bit of a, a VHS versus Betamax thing going on here between uh, the two different competing charging standards for level three. So you, you, you would have to pay pretty close attention to what's compatible with your car. See, and that's an issue because, like, I, I guess if you use diesel, you might an- accidentally pull up to one of the pumps for the big rigs and the nozzle won't fit in the hole. But in the end, a gas station is a gas station is a gas station. And that's probably something that will work itself out in time. Like you said, VHS and, and Betamax, nobody had to come in and outlaw beta. It just eventually went away. Uh, but, you know, when you look at a, a house, if you if you walk up to an electrical outlet, you pretty much have, you know, like you said, one twenty two forty. The plug goes in, and every house, they're all the same. So that's something, I guess, that tech kind of has to equalize out. Correct, correct. You know, the first standard that came on the market was over in Japan. Of course, now we've got the SAE, you know, Society of Automotive Engineers, trying to push a, a different standard here in the U.S. backed by car manufacturers. And it's <laughs> it's going to be a mess for a little bit until it works its way out. But fortunately, like you said, 120 volt is the same everywhere, and you know, even if there's only 120,000 gas stations throughout the entire United States, think about how many millions, if not billions, of wall sockets there are on the outside of buildings, you know. What, what I've always thought, like, so I used to have a, a parking space that I paid, I think, like 15 bucks a, a month for uh, at my office, ex, you know, extra so that I could be under shade. And I looked at all those shaded things and thought, would be rapid charging, but if every one of those little, you know, covers had solar on it, uh, every electric vehicle parked under there could be at least charging at some rate all day long. You know, most people are going to work an eight hour day. Sure, you might go to lunch for an hour, but you're going to have, you know, seven, eight hours of charge. And even if that only dropped in 30 miles, anyway, using an electric vehicle, that's going to get them home anyway. So, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity to do things like that. We can pretty much make electricity anywhere. 
because uh, what I want to go on to next is, you know, there's the long tailpipe argument and what have you. And one of, the, I think, the funniest comedians I ever heard is a guy named Louis Black. And I remember one time he said something about, you know, we should have, some of his buddies said, we should have a look at your cars. And he's like, yeah, sure, because electricity comes from a jelly bean field. Right? So some, one way or another, this energy has to originate somewhere. So do we really gain anything with an electric vehicle with today's technology? Or do we still have a long way to go? Or have we gotten somewhere, but we need more, we got to do more? Sure. And unfortunately, adding up all of the factors in what they call, you know, well the wheels or life cycle efficiency for petroleum fuels, electric fuels, is, it's a bit of a black art. And like any other kind of science, you can slice and dice it a bunch of different ways. But what we do know is that the extraction, the transport, the refining, the marketing of petroleum-based fuel takes a lot of kilowatt hours of electricity a lot of natural gas and most especially a lot of water. So I tried to do a lot of research on the subject and was getting wide ranges of numbers as to just how much electricity goes into producing a gallon of gasoline. Most of the answers I was finding was between 6 to 12 kilowatt hours per gallon of petrol fuel. Now that same 6 to 12 kilowatt hours is going to get me in my car somewhere between 24 and 36 miles on the Chevy Volt. So in my mind, what's the point spending that electricity, spending that water, spending that natural gas to create a petroleum fuel to burn the petroleum fuel. Why do we need that extra production step in there when it makes so much more sense to take the source of electricity, whatever that is, you know, maybe you've got geothermal or hydro in mountainous areas. We've got tons of natural gas in Texas. We've got winds in the plains. We've got wave energy on the coast. We've got solar on deserts. We've got biomass in places where things just grow like crazy in the Northeast. We've got all these different kinds of source or primary fuels, but we can use electricity as a great common denominator so that the same car can use different renewable resources in different regions of the country. I think that makes sense, and I, I have a kind of a way to even extend that. So it'll sound really weird at first, but I liken it to the subway system in New York City. So before there was a subway system in New York City, there was a lot of commerce and whatnot in New York, and it was a big place, and it's it's been almost as the founding of the country, an important part of America with the ports and everything. But New York City, as we think of it, Manhattan Island and the surrounding islands, Staten and you know Brooklyn and all this, weren't really that densely populated, uh, even compared to a place like let's say Philadelphia for the time, and they you know is is, is Technologies came along and trains were being made available and everything, and they eventually decided they want to put a, a subway system in a mass transit system. And you know, you think you look at it today, it makes perfect sense there would be a subway system in New York City. But by the time they got ready to start building it, it didn't make sense. It was one of the most monumentous engineering uh, things to ever be done. And the 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 response to the people that wanted to do it was, it will never be what it could be until we put the subways in first. That once people have a way to get around this, because it's basically a swamp, right? Um, then it can become what it really can become. And I think of electric vehicles a lot like that because no matter what it takes to make electricity today, and I think you'd agree with this, the cleanest form of energy at the time of it being expended is electric. The cheapest form of energy to move from one place to another is electric. And once I have it in one place, all I need is a wire. And I can send it for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. So given that's the case, if we build enough electric vehicles, then 
all these other forms that you're talking about of energy production will start getting ramped up, and we have no idea what way we're going to come up with to make electricity tomorrow. But we know there'll be new ways, right? Well, there's only ever going to be one way to turn crude oil into gasoline, right? I mean, you might change some, some, some little different tweaks about how you do it or efficiencies or whatever, but in the end, you have to pull it out of the ground and turn it into that. Um, whereas electricity, we could come up with a way tomorrow to make it in a, total, a way nobody's really even ever thought of before. Correct, and the other opportunity there that you have to have to have to consider is you can make your own electricity, solar panels, mm. micro hydro, wind, you know, wood gas, gasification generator. You can make your own electricity at home very very easily. You can't make your own crude oil. Uh, even in the places where it used to bubble up in the ground, out of the ground, it's gone, right? You have if to have did, massive drilling rigs. It, even if it, it did, right? Even if you had a Jed Clampett experience and you were out hunting on your back 40 and a 50 caliber musket round went in the ground and up from the ground came a bubbling crude, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to set up a refinery in your basement, right? I don't think most people would even have the technical know-how, let alone want all of the uh, the byproducts that come out, sure. out of refining. You know, what are you going to do with, you know, naphthas and and all the extra things that come out of refining, right? Absolutely, and like you said, you know, there's there's a lot of ways you can do it. I remember I watched one special on it. It was a British show, and they wanted to make micro hydro, and there was a creek, but the creek only went through a small piece of the property. And then came back down around and re-entered the property at the bottom. And it was a very sh shallow angle the creek took. But it was a very big drop from the top of the property to the bottom of the property. Well, even their government over there didn't really care if you took water out of the creek. As long as nothing happened to it and it went back in the creek. So they put a pipe in a, in a small little, you know, like partial dam up in the creek. And they ran a pipe all the way down and just dumped the water back in the creek. But at multiple places along the way, that water spun turbines that made electricity. And it made this huge amount of electricity, and the entire investment basically was the generators, some batteries, and a pipe. Now, you can't exactly. do that. Well. You can't do It's just impossible. So that's Exactly. Even, you know, Colorado, where water rights are such a huge, 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 huge deal, I'm looking at putting microhydro in on my place and, you know, discuss it with the water commissioner. He's like, yeah, that's that's. Not it doesn't even affect the water way any. Have yeah. fun. It, it doesn't take away from the water reserve in any way, shape, or form. It, it doesn't even really, like you know, a typical microhydro thing in the creek itself doesn't even really alter the flow. Uh, this, I guess, altered right. the flow, but it was altering what a four-inch pipe. But it was like it was stupid the pressure that this water came out the bottom with, and the the speed at which you could turn a turbine was insane. They actually they ran a uh, what do you call it like a Not really, not really a scale model because it was full size, but like a test bed. They first did it with uh, fire hoses from fire trucks. So they laid all these fire hoses out on the ground to see if it would work. And the guy was just like holding the fire hose, like pointing it at the turbine. It sounded like a jet when it was spinning. And uh, so it's you're, you're right. There's just like so many ways you can make electricity in your backyard, even if you buy a solar panel or buy a turbine. Once it's there, power comes out of it. And... I think those are the types of things, like, if, if everybody's car ran on electricity, and I don't want to get there with regulation, but if we get there with innovation, then it starts getting a lot more attractive to put these alternative energy sources in your backyard. 
Exactly. You don't even have a long tailpipe argument anymore when you've got a completely clean electricity source on your own property and the electricity is going 50 feet into your garage and into your car. The long tailpipe argument just becomes a moot point. So there's there's incentives for these things. How how do the, the tax incentives and stuff to like to go out and buy a vault or a leaf or whatever? How does that stuff work? I know a lot of people get all and you know their their panties in a wad because it's tax money. But I mean, I, I personally look at it this way: to get a tax incentive, I have to spend my money and I spend less of it. And somebody's getting the incentive anyway. And in the end, I have yet to work incentives to a way that I ever got back more than they took from me. So I'm going to use what's available. What's available? So the federal tax credit gets a little bit larger depending on the larger uh, how big the battery size is. So something in a, a plug-in Prius, which is only I think about a three kilowatt hour battery, gets about half the credit or about thirty five hundred. The max credit's about seventy five hundred dollars, and that's a straight credit off your taxes. That's not a deduction. That's if you were going to pay ten thousand dollars in federal income tax, now you're paying twenty five hundred in federal income tax. Mm. Now, some states have some additional benefit on that, and it will depend on what well, well, sure business acquisition. That. You're, you're, you're not saying that, because I, I, you know, I haven't tried to buy one of these things yet, so I didn't quite understand it. I want to make sure I do. You're saying that the tax incentive on this thing is not such that the price of the vehicle goes down, but I pay less of the tax I was going to pay anyway, like uh, like an Energy Star appliance. Exactly. Oh. Think of it like a, a rebate later from Uncle Scam. Oh, so that even makes my argument stronger because I literally am getting my own money back <laughs> in one way. I guess. And the people that have a hard time with this being used for alternative energy vehicles need to think about, you know, in the early 2000s when they were just about buying a vehicle for you, as long as it was over 6,000 pounds gross vehicle weight, it's the same concept. It just happens to be for a different kind of vehicle. Sure, sure, absolutely. That makes that makes perfect sense. You said you own a Volt, was that correct? What I mean, after owning one, do you think they're the greatest thing to slice to slice bread? Do they have a long way to go? Would you buy it again? That type of thing. Certainly, uh, electric drivetrain is absolutely hands down, in my opinion, the best drivetrain that's out there. It's really fun to drive because you have all of the torque right from zero. You know, right when you're first going away from a stoplight you got you got all your torque very quick throttle response it means it's actually in my opinion a little bit safer to drive because you can vary your speed uh without even having to move the foot from the gas pedal to the brake pedal as soon as i release my foot off the gas pedal it actually goes into a regenerative braking mode where it's running the motor backwards and taking the vehicle speed and turning it back into electricity storing it back in the battery so there's a half a second there where I'm already braking before my foot has moved over to the other pedal. So um, uh, uh, in that case, I think it's actually, like I said, safer. Um, now, I don't want to get too far off into any particular models, number one, because there's new models coming out all the time, and the different models are going to be appropriate for different people. Uh, and in fact, I would look at a, a website called pluginamerica.com if you wanted to research, you know, what's available in a year or two if you're listening to this episode later. Uh, the main thing that I think needs to happen now is just that the electric drivetrain needs to get into more different kinds of chassis. You know, the Volt itself is actually a fairly small, compact car. Yeah, it'll hold a lot more than you think it would looking at it from the outside, but honestly, for my 
my new land out in Colorado, I would really like a full-size four-wheel drive truck. Fortunately, electric drivetrains are starting to show up in full-size trucks. They're starting to show up in smaller SUVs. I think that's the most important thing that needs to happen is just electric drivetrains and more different chassis. Let me ask you a question on that. So I I can get my head around um, a practical equivalent to, like, let's say an F-150. And Ford, you know, some guys are going to get upset with me, but there's a fundamental reality here. I have a hard time getting my head around a functional equivalent to my giant diesel F-350 that could literally pull my house down if I needed it to. Now, it's true that the majority of the time I'm using that vehicle, I do not require the power that that vehicle has. I, I don't. But there's the reason I bought it is there are times that I need that incredible torque of a diesel motor and what that vehicle will do and you know pulling huge trailers up steep inclines that type of thing do you see us getting to a point where we have electric vehicles that are that equivalent and them being in any way cost effective at that or does that type of thing remain the efficient you know remain the domain of this is where a petroleum vehicle makes sense well let me ask you this what pulls a mile long train I was thinking you were going to say that because I was hybrid. asking the question. As you were asking that question, I was thinking about my earlier comment about the freaking subways. And But exactly. see, the difference there is the train has its power source with it. In other words, it's, it's a direct draw. So the train doesn't have a, a, a giant battery in it that just runs independently. The, the tracks themselves are an overhead wire along the tracks are feeding that energy to that vehicle on a, in a kind of an on-demand world. So the power is obviously possible because we have trains that, you know, are, like you said, a mile long uh, that move at incredible speeds, by the way. So I get that too. But, you know, some of them are using mag lift and stuff like that, whereas I'm talking about a vehicle that has to be completely independent of that power source and, and be able to do that. I guess it's possible, but I guess my question is more, can it be done cost-effectively? At this exact moment, I would say no, but okay. the good news is battery technology is moving along kind of like computer technology. We're getting a doubling of energy density every two to three years. So right now we've got energy densities in the uh, 300 watt hours per liter kind of range. We want, If we want to get to parity with fit, uh, petroleum fuels, we need to add another zero on the end of that. Sure. So if we're doubling it every three years, that means we're a decade or two away from having a full-size truck that will go just as far and have just as much power as one that's got a, a diesel tank in the back. That makes sense. And, I mean, the other side of that is, like I said, I don't need that power. I mean, honestly, I've probably put 10,000 miles on that truck in the last two years because, you know, we have a really nice little SUV that we use for all our driving around and what have you. I use it to haul heavy weight and to drag heavy things and to go into really nasty places when I need four-wheel drive in a big truck. So even if that's the case, it doesn't matter because most people, let's be honest, most of us rednecks that drive big trucks drive them because we like them. We're not driving them because we need them. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but that's the truth. That's the honesty. Sure, there's you know a, a peak demand required in a very short period of time, and the rest of the time you're moving around a, a lot of vehicle and a lot of engine just to have that peak capability. Whereas some of these converted uh, you know full size trucks, they're able to go from a V8 
down to a V6, or there's actually a, a pretty compelling argument for a good turbocharged four-cylinder, mm-hmm. and the electric motor steps in to give you the peak torque for that you know short 2, 3, 10, 20 seconds that you need peak torque, and then you can have a continuous running generator to get your average load or your long demand load, and that's exactly how the Volt works, and it, it works out great. Um, and that makes a lot the, of sense know, to me. Kind of that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me because the the internal combustion engine, for all the beat-up it gets, is one of the most optimized pieces of an engineering because it's been with us so long and it hasn't changed very much in its fundamental operations for so long. And as people have competed to have theirs be stronger, faster, better, more mileage, longer lasting, the efficiencies are huge. I think that it, I think the internal combustion engine actually gets a little bit crapped on unfairly because people don't realize how efficient they are. And then, you know, there is the argument of, well, look at a 1967 327 Fuely and, you know, why can't we build something that efficient today? I guess we can, but they, they tend not to. Sure, and there's a lot of research and development going into getting the last few percentage points of efficiency out of an internal combustion engine, but we're, you know, asymptoting towards the the peak that you're ever going to get out of an internal combustion engine. However, we have not explored at all the limits of battery technology, and so by taking a a known, uh, you know, well-understood road of an internal combustion engine, pairing it with battery and motor technology that, again, can step in for the peak loads, that's the right answer for right now, in my opinion. I think a plug-in hybrid really is the best answer for most people today. Yeah. But, again, I expect my answer to change in 15 to 20 years for sure. Isn't there one vehicle that kind of works like this? It's got a gas motor, but the gas motor doesn't really do anything for the vehicle itself. It's basically a little generator, and when it needs more power, the gas motor kicks on and charges up the electrical isn't there one that does that? The BMW i3 is like that, where it's um, completely isolated, the optional range extender motor that you can get thrown in the front of that thing. Uh, there's no mechanical connection between the engine and the wheels at all versus the Chevy Volt where there is. Now, it turns out it's more efficient total to actually have the the generator mechanically connected to the wheels when okay. you're cruising at highway speeds for a long time. Um, but... There is a large amount of simplicity gained by having just an electric generator that happens to go to, you know, an electric battery that goes to an electric motor. Now you don't have to have a, a really complicated, interesting transmission. Less moving like the parts. Yeah, yeah. Less moving parts, more reliability. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really beginning to, to, to explore all of this. Another objection that I hear and from a, a, a remarkably interesting group, because you think the environmentalists would be the one all over this is not so fast because there's an incredible uh, resource limitation and environmental cost to all of these rare earth elements necessary to build these batteries. How would you kind of reply to that? There's really not as much rare earth in the batteries as there is in the motors, mm. and the industry is already R&Ding their way around that. Oh. Um, the, the one that everybody's worried about, of course, is lithium, you know, you have lithium-ion batteries. Uh, we do have a huge reserve of lithium available in many, many places, including under the oceans. But in my opinion, the lithium batteries will be replaced by carbon-based graphene batteries before we ever run into peak lithium, let's say. 
Um, it, lithium's a good stepping stone to somewhere else, but it's it's not the end game. So does I'm not it create about an environmental that. problem though? Like what happens when these batteries are finished? Like, okay, I've 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 run the shit out of my vehicle. I traded it in. Somebody else bought it. They ran the shit out of it. And, and you know the sure. the new world mechanic looks at it and goes, these new batteries. If it's going to keep going, what happens sure. to the old battery? What happens to all that stuff? Because like lithium's not something I want to dump out on my floor. Uh, the good news is batteries are very much recyclable, but we don't even need to recycle them. When a, a battery is starting to have losses of total capacity into, let's say, the 20 30% range, so it's only giving you 70% of what it used to, okay, fine, it's time to pull it out of the car. The good news is we have other uses for that 70% that's left over. The most interesting use, in my opinion, is to create neighborhood-sized battery banks to buffer the peak energy demand from the the grid or to step in as a, you know, one to two day battery backup supply for an entire neighborhood. And there are already companies that are uh, doing the engineering, doing demonstrations on taking packs from eight or 10 different cars and being able to, you know, put out a battery backup power station that'll do one whole block for a day or two. That's pretty impressive. Um, so I think we've beaten up electric pretty good. Before we move on, uh, do you ever see yourself owning another vehicle that's not hybrid electric or electric? Ever going back and buying a gas vehicle now that you've driven one for a while? Well, you know, I try not to ever say never, but it would take a heck of an offer for somebody to give me just a gasoline-powered vehicle only or just a diesel-powered vehicle only. I think there's just too many advantages to the electricity to leave that on the table. So the other like thing that's going to save us other than electricity in, in the minds of many is biodiesel. What, what's been your experience with biodiesel, and what are your thoughts on that in general? So I do have personal experience with biodiesel. I took my dad's uh, 99 and a half. VW Jetta, so you know the other end of the the same generation of Jetta that you used to have. Um, you know, after he passed, he handed it down to me. He'd been running petro diesel in it for about ten years. I did a lot of research before I changed over to uh, buying biodiesel from a commercial producer there in Texas uh, called Texas Biotech over in Arlington. Uh, great guys, by the way, absolutely awesome. You know, the, it's like a full service gas station. You actually pull up there and they pump the stuff for you. It's, it's amazing service, but um, I slowly transitioned from the petrodiesel to the biodiesel because petrodiesel leaves a lot of sludge, a lot of deposits behind in the fuel tank, in the fuel system, etc. So I took about three to four months transitioning from 0% biodiesel to 100% biodiesel. Uh, I ended up going through three fuel filters in that time just because of all the, the stuff, the, the petrodiesel uh, was solvented out by the biodiesel. Once that changeover to 100% biodiesel happened, there was a noticeable pep increase. You know, diesels don't really accelerate. They just kind of gain momentum, as yep. my dad used to say. But it certainly gained momentum a lot better. Um, you know, mileage went up a couple of miles per gallon. You know, it's obviously there's a lot of factors in, in air conditioning and temperature and this and that and the other thing. But I would say I was getting probably about 5% better mileage on it. Uh, but the best part about it was, it smelled a hell of a lot better. Um, I had actually catch people walking behind the car after I just shut it down and kind of taking a taking a whiff and going, that doesn't smell like a diesel car. Uh, it smells 
smell better. So um, the good news is biodiesel is completely non-toxic. You can make it from a whole lot of different feedstocks depending on what's available in your, your region. Now, the, the guys that I was buying from, they were using virgin soy oil. So it hadn't been through a McDonald's. It wasn't waste vegetable oil. Okay, this is brand new soy oil that's just come out of the, the field and the presser. Uh, so it was very clean, you know, very good quality stuff. Uh, but you can make it out of palm oil. Um, they're making biodiesels out of Detrofa over in India. And most of the national train system in India is now run on uh, biodiesel from Detrofa. You were talking about sunflower oil a couple months back in an episode. I think that's also a very viable feedstock. You know, they're all going to have a little bit different properties. The biggest one is uh, what, at what temperature does the fuel gel? Uh, you know, regular petrodiesel is going to be good down to maybe minus 20 without minus 20 Fahrenheit without any real additives. The biodiesel I was running from those guys would tend to gel about 30 Fahrenheit, give or take, which could be uh, amended by either doing a blend with petrodiesel, putting in uh, some commercially available additive called diesel 911 or my personal favorite was actually just to blend it with good old jet a jet fuel and get the uh, gel point down about 20 degrees. And mm. uh, of course in North Texas, it doesn't get that cold for that long. So just a little bit of planning goes a long way when, when it comes to trying to keep fuel from gelling. Definitely. And yeah, once the vehicle's running too, that's another thing. There's just, it ain't going to be under the hood. It ain't going to be 20 degrees. And uh, so, you know, things like having a warm garage go a long way too. Are, and the best method I would say is just put a little bit of what's in your tank in a glass jar, put it out on the windowsill or you know out on the fence, someplace where you can see it from inside the house. And if it's still liquid in the jar, it's still liquid in your tank. That would that would absolutely be the case. <laughs> It'd make really simple sense. What what are your thoughts on the different uh, sources though? Like how sustainable? How much does it really make sense? We'll talk about ethanol in a minute. I think there's a real problem there with the way we're making ethanol, but. Um, does it make sense to be turning things that could otherwise be feeding livestock or human beings into fuel in the, the biodiesel world, not the ethanol world? Because, I mean, I hear people like Mark Shepard talking about growing hazelnut, and you can actually run a diesel vehicle on hazelnut oil. It just seems like a very high-end product to be burning. I mean, I don't know if you've priced a gallon of hazelnut oil. I, I think their standpoint is, well, if we created this whole perennial agriculture system and we had ass loads of hazelnuts, there would be different grades and it would be the ones that are small and kind of sucky for food that would go to oil and there'd be so much of it, it would be cheaper. So I guess that's the, but when I look at something like sunflower, I look, well, my ducks eat that. And so I'm still turning a food into a fuel, but is it not as bad as let's say ethanol? Biodiesel is definitely a much, much, much better return on investment than ethanol. And we'll, we'll talk more about ethanol and the, uh, the problems associated with it just a little bit later. I agree. Um, best cases scenario, you get about three times the energy back versus what you put in with biodiesel or the estimates that I've seen. But using permaculture principles, we can have the same output multiply reused, right? So we take the sunflowers, we press out all the oil that's easily pressed and, you know, in a first cold pressing out of the sunflower oil, we're still going to end up with a lot of mass left over. It can be fed to ducks or, um, you know, Cows put back into the ground or yeah. something like that. So, 
it's not a one-off either food or fuel. It's that we can pull a little bit of fuel, you know, off, use the rest in a, a type of food, you know, may not be human food, maybe animal food. Um, but again, permaculture principles here, if we're getting away from monocrop agriculture and we should be able to increase the total amount of food available, then it's not a food or fuel debate anymore. It's food and fuel. That's interesting too. Cause like if you did it with hazelnuts, you know, a la shepherd, you're ending up with a very high protein meal and you're actually ending up percentage wise with a higher protein meal than you've started with because you've removed the fat in the form of oil for the fuel. So while there's not, you don't end up with more stuff, you end up with a higher ratio of protein. So it would be a very useful additive for cooking and you end up with a higher carbohydrate ratio too. So it would be a very good, uh, uh, stock feed, uh, in a lot of ways too. So I guess, yeah, that makes sense. One of the other, and it's perennial. That's the other, the other big thing, right? You don't have to plant it every year. It's perennial, and one of the other byproducts for making biodiesel is uh, glycerin, which is, of course, important to make soap. So you've got food, fuel, and soap all coming out of this process. That's interesting. And then if we stick with hazelnuts, then you've got the wood from all the trimmings. You've got the shells. So you've got another fuel source. And a carbon neutral exactly. one at that, right? Because it came from the air, it went back to the air, it's all evened out. So we can burn that, we can make charcoal with that. So it's like, all of a sudden, it starts like, you go from this point of, this doesn't make sense, to this makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't make sense until we plant about a kabillion more acres of hazelnut, because right now, like I said, I think a, I think a gallon of hazelnut oil is probably about 30 bucks. You ain't putting that in your car, even if it works. <laughs> sure. You sell it for I mean, here's one more case where... Yeah, right? You know... Yeah, the more centralized and the more focused we try to do the production of this stuff, the less it makes sense. But when we're trying to go into backyard scale, you know, self-sustainability, small scale production, you know, maybe you're doing it for you and 50 of your closest friends, then all of these things make sense because we're not having massive, 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 quote unquote, waste products. We're able to take those, you know, outputs or byproducts and do something with them and biodiesel, again, being non-toxic those quote-unquote byproducts are extremely useful. Yeah, that's that's the other thing, too. It's not just what we get as a fuel, but it's what we get as a byproduct. Every byproduct of a sunflower is usable for something and doesn't have to have anything done to it to make it not dangerous. And it doesn't produce any rusting metal metallic barrels of crap, and we don't need a landfill, and we don't need to burn it off or whatever. Every single element that we can't figure out a use for, then screw it, throw it on the ground, it compost back to soil, right? Um, so that's that's another valid point. Now, people would try to make the same arguments for ethanol. Um, I think ethanol is one of the greatest experiments in stupidity uh, in its in its current application that humankind has ever done. Taking Now, I would prefer people didn't eat lots of corn, and I think people eat way too much corn sugar in their diets, mainly because it's in everything. But in the end, corn is a food, And to have a nation who produces more of it than just about any other nation in the world turn it into alcohol that could be at least make your sorrows about your government less through drinking it, get rid of the food, produce the alcohol, and then burn it in a car while people starve makes no sense to me at all. True. And, you know, the energy audit on ethanol is, is not good at all. The socioeconomic impacts are, are not good at all, but also it's, it's just not a good fuel to begin with. Uh, it tends to 
attract water out of the air. And, but unfortunately, if you mix ethanol and gasoline, because you know very, very, very few cars will burn straight ethanol. So now we've got a, this kind of mixture of gasoline, ethanol, and suspended water. Well, the more water this ethanol soaks into the, the mixture, the more the ethanol separates from the gasoline, and the more chances you're going to have to have problems in the engine, either problems from corrosion, problems from bad uh, mixtures, you know, even our modern computer-controlled electronic fuel injection you know, if it's getting a sip of gasoline on this firing cycle and a sip of ethanol on this firing cycle and a sip of water on this firing cycle, that engine is not going to be happy. So, so what, what do you say to people? I'm sure you've heard Stephen Harris, right? He says this is all bullshit. It's all a witch hunt. You can drink this stuff. Quit whining about it. Put in your car. Going on with life. There's a lot of debate out there. You know, ethanol 10, E10 versus E15 versus E85. And the reality is there are engines that are set up for ethanol. Great. They're going to run ethanol. Um, but if the smaller the engine and especially the, the small air cooled, you know, you're talking Briggs and Stratton engines, like you're using for a lawnmower or something like that. Uh, I, in my opinion, my research says that ethanol is just not appropriate to be put in those small engines for many, many, many reasons. Okay. I know I just recently bought a tiller. I know everybody's like, oh, Jack bought a tiller, but I'm using it basically as a trencher. And the cashier at Home Depot was trying to, to, to ring it up, and it wouldn't ring up, and there was a notice that she didn't see, and she finally saw it. And the notice required her to notify me not to put gas with anything greater than 10% ethanol into it. Now, that may become all but impossible at some point, but... At least the manufacturer of that motor is saying, dude, if you want our warranty, you can't do this. So at least it tells me that somebody else feels that way. Sure, sure. And, you know, there's a lot of information, disinformation on it. The good news is we have a way around all this problem. We can make it completely moot, and that is to shift our production from ethanol to a different alcohol-type fuel, which is butanol. Butanol is a much closer in chemical properties to gasoline. It doesn't have the water um, attracting and separating properties of ethanol. Uh, you can use it in the same kinds of plants uh, that we currently produce ethanol in, but most especially the, the fermentation bacteria can use a wider range of feedstock besides just corn uh, to make the butanol. So these the butanol is just barely starting to show up on the commercial market just mm. last year, this year. And I think we're going to see people realize that, as you said, ethanol was just a waste of time. Let's go do this butanol thing instead. Now, of course, the holy grail for all this stuff is to quit doing it with grains, quit doing it with grasses, and start doing it with algae-based feedstocks because the algae doesn't have nearly as much structure that it has to grow versus like a grass. It can just take the sunlight in, do the photosynthesis thing, you know, either directly sweat out the butanol or create um, certain sugary-type products that can be fermented into butanol. Uh, so the algae-based, either butanol or algae-based biodiesel is definitely where we need to be putting our R&D dollars, not hydrogen. <laughs> yeah, hydrogen, in your things, you have a great re waste of resources. I call it a giant mass delusion. Uh, that's why, I, actually, I think maybe hallucination is a better term. I think 
the, the, the future of hydrogen cell technology is something that maybe someday, somehow, some way it could happen. But in the current form, it's a, it's a giant cultural mass hallucination. Um, well, it's, what, what are your thoughts? Opinion, There's more, so many people pushing it, like big companies, they have their hydrogen bus or whatever. Why, why are they doing this? In my opinion, the reason why you see Toyota and the state of California and all these people making all this uh, headlines now about, you know, like hydrogen fuel cells is because they're trying to keep a fuel that is hard for the common person to produce for themselves, you know, out of their minds. They want, you know, gasoline and petrol fuels. They want hydrogen, which requires, you know, first of all, a source of energy to make hydrogen. Most of the time we're making it as a, um, a product from natural gas. But then you're also going to need very specialized equipment to compress it to the te- uh, pressures necessary to store enough hydrogen in a small space. You're going to need um, very, very uh, specialized designs on the tanks to hold this stuff. We're going to need infrastructure costs to build the stations to do all this hydrogen stuff. And just, I'm sorry, but we're not doing this for ourselves as individuals but that's the way the energy companies want it. They want you to be dependent and have to buy fuels from somebody else, not be able to make it for yourself. That's a good point because I know farmers who absolutely produce their own diesel from, let's say, pressed sunflower heads on their own property. They do everything themselves, and they don't produce enough to you know, take a trip to Ann Edna's three times a week or something uh, with the wife, but they produce enough to run their tractors on their farm. From a few acres they set aside to do that. That happens. That really does. Um, there are people that are living off-grid with solar. There, and with ethanol, you know, maybe it's dumb to turn food into fuel, but other than the fact that you get busted for moonshine and without a permit to do it for fuel, anybody and their brother can turn anything sugary into alcohol. But yep. you can't, I can't, no one can without a very advanced, very expensive equipment produce and and contain and utilize hydrogen. You can make it, right? I made it in high school by pouring hydrochloric acid over a piece of zinc. We filled up a balloon with it and we set it off. It was like a little mini atomic bomb. And I'll be honest, it led to some pretty cool home experimentation. But I can't use it to run a car. I can't use it to generate power for my home. And and the shit online that says you can is all BS, man. We we know that, you know. Put this thing on your engine; it'll make hydrogen and burn it. It's no, no. So you're right. It's, you know, in it's, all my in all my research, I've run across one case where one person successfully converted his house to hydrogen, and he spent almost three hundred thousand dollars doing it. Uh, Whereas I've got a long term plan from my mom's place to get a combination of solar, wind, backup generator, uh, and we're going to be somewhere between twelve and fifteen thousand dollars in that plan. Tell me which one you'd rather do. Yeah. Yeah. Absol- I mean, it's just, that's kind of absolutely the case. And at 300 grand, is he free of inputs? Or does he have to get a side you know, somewhere? <laughs> just because just it runs on it doesn't mean he makes it, right? I mean, yeah, well, that was the electrolysis machine that'll take okay. distilled water. So first you got to distill the water and make it clean enough, uh, crack the water into the hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, but then again, you got to store it. You got to have something else that turns the hydrogen back into electricity, whether that be a fuel cell or a uh, internal combustion engine or something like that. And so it's it's just a lot of conversion steps, and every conversion is just a little bit wasteful. Okay, that makes sense. So, with all of this being said, 
if person was out there and fancied themselves a homesteader prepper and said they're in the market for a new vehicle, what, what, what would you recommend they look at? Uh, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the, the more common case first, which is somebody that's in suburbia, commutes to a job, does that kind sure. of stuff. Um, again, it's a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle where it's got a battery and a gas engine like the Chevy Volt, uh, and you want to size the battery to be about twice your one-way commute, in my opinion. What that means is if there's a uh, issue with charging at the uh, the house or an issue of charging at work, um, you've still got enough battery to turn around and get back to your other point of charging, right? So two is one, one is none. I'm not I'm not relying on charging on both ends, but I have enough battery that I can go round trip one time if I need to. And that means, you know, when I was doing that, I had a a 19 mile commute each way. Uh, the battery in the 2013 volt that I have, I can get up to about 46 miles, which means I can make it to work and back to the home. Uh, I'd often go a month or more without using any gasoline at all, okay. which meant that it took my, my daily round trip from five bucks a round trip with gasoline to 50 cents a round trip. Now, somebody that's more of a, like you said, a homesteader, um, you know, trying to do more with the vehicle, needs more utility. I'd watch very, very closely two companies uh, called Via Motors. One of them's out, uh, he's out in uh, Orem, Utah, and they're taking the Chevy platform, um, you know, that they do their medium-duty trucks and vans and that kind of stuff, and they're putting the plug-in hybrid powertrain into the full-size truck. The other thing that's really interesting about that product is they're doing all of the uh, power offboarding feature so that you have a 120 volt outlet and a 240 volt outlet just in the side of the truck. So here you've got a mobile power station, a la what you and Stephen Harris have done in the back of your trucks with golf cart batteries. But instead of just a couple of golf cart batteries, you've now got 20 plus kilowatt hours running your mobile battery bank. Uh, second company called Alt-E is doing the same thing with the Ford trucks. Um, the only downside is they're not doing a 4x4 powertrain in the Fords. Uh, whereas the biomotor should be a four by four. And of course, out where I live in Colorado, I need four wheel drive. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of changes the whole world. I think right now there's, I don't think there is a good electric vehicle with four wheel drive right now, unless I'm wrong. Um, the 2015 Volvo XC plug-in XC90 plug-in hybrid, I believe will be the first one to have all-wheel drive, other than these Via Motors ones, which are in limited deliveries right now. So those, those two are should be available this year, and yeah, that'll make a big, big difference having four-wheel drive. And that, but that's like a kind of a a, a small SUV-ish type thing, you know, that type of thing. It's not a truck, right? I don't know that vehicle. I'm kind of sort of seeing it in my yeah. It's, it's a you know, large crossover or small SUV. A crossover, that's what I'm um, but, but it's going to have 400 foot-pounds of torque, which means you can do a lot of, you know, towing a, a, a reasonable size trailer with it, too. Sure. Um, but it's a Volvo, so it's going to be expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Volvo's one of those things is they're expensive because, in the end, uh, they might not be the coolest-looking thing in the world, but they're damn dependable and they're damn safe. I mean that's it's hard to argue with you know with the, the the track record of Volvo in those those two worlds. Um 
In fact, they, I don't know if you know this, but Volvo initially did not want to be branded as the safety conscious vehicle. They wanted to brand themselves mostly with reliability. And the track record of safety in a Volvo was such that the market actually created the brand. And Volvo eventually said, okay, fine, yeah, we're really safe. Because people <laughs> started buying it because they felt that way just on safety reports and the data that came out and what have you. Um, so some things are more expensive because, well, people that build them do a really good job of them. I, you, you drove a Volkswagen. You, you can say what you want about foreign cars, but, I mean, when I bought my turbo diesel, anything else in the price range, I felt like the Volkswagen embar embarrassed it. From quality, performance, handling, torque, everything. It was a cut above. Sure. VW TDIs are, you know, there's a reason why they have as much market dominance as they do over in Europe. You know, the, the VW, Audi, et cetera. And, you know, kudos to them for bringing the TDI over here to the U.S. before the market really said it was ready for it. Because, honestly, the capabilities of the vehicle were, were just Way better, way, way, way better than the gas engine. What are some ways people could maybe get these vehicles more affordably? I had some stuff in your notes about that with, uh, like, off-lease and stuff like that. Like, instead of just going out and buying a brand-new one of these, there's some good deals on them, and maybe there's more coming as, as they become more prevalent? Yeah, absolutely. The first wave of people that bought Leafs and Volts and stuff like that, uh, a lot of them were kind of nervous about battery longevity and, and stuff like that. So a lot of people that got a lease uh, for two years or three years back in 2011, 2012, something like that. So there's a lot of these cars going to be coming off of leases here. Um, and the, the resale value, in my opinion, is actually undervalued um, for what you're, what you're getting. The market really just, it's still too nervous about battery longevity, in, in my opinion, inappropriately so. So the good news is these used vehicles are relatively cheap. I was looking the other day uh, trying to help my, my little brother shop for a car, uh, and there were you know 2011 Chevy Volts, 40,000 miles on them total, going for like $13,000. Wow! Which means you still get all the benefits of the you know the plug-in electric hy hybrid powertrain. What you don't get is the tax credit, which is only available when you buy a brand new untitled vehicle. Mm. Now, there's one more possibility here, which is the dealer demo cars. So they've been running around for 1,500, 2,000 miles, you know, showing off, um, you know, hey, look at this, this new brand new electric uh, drivetrain we've got here. Look at this great car. Oh, wait, it's coming up towards 2,000, 2,500 miles. All right, we're going to sell it. It's still a new car because it's never been titled, but it's priced like a used car-ish. Uh, so I've heard of people getting as much as 10000 off of MSRP by picking up the dealer demo car that's you know been in use for a year or two maybe and, and still, again, only got 2,000 or 3,000 miles on it. Very cool. So I guess my other question that you kind of thought of there, you mentioned the tax incentives and only when you buy a, a, a new untitled vehicle. So if I go lease a new vehicle, do I get the mm -hmm. tax incentive? And if not, then it seems like no one does. Because if I'm bringing it you, – you see what I'm saying? Like, So when I – When I lease a vehicle, I don't ever take title to the vehicle. It remains the property of the manufacturer or the dealer. I, I, so how well, the leasing company, the financing company that's, that's 
acting as the middleman between you and the manufacturer, they're actually the ones who legally have the title. Okay. Therefore, they're the ones that actually get the tax credit, mm. and it should be factored into the calculations and the lease price, which is why the lease prices have been just absolutely you know, very, 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 very low. Uh, I've heard of Chevy Volts being leased for as low as like 150, 170 dollars a month. Really? At one point, at one point, Nissan had a 99 dollar a month, you know, lease deal. Of course, there was some money on the table to begin with, you know, three thousand down or something like that. Um, now, if you go out shopping for leases, uh, be real careful. There's a, a Mitsubishi I M I E V, which at one point was leasing for 70 dollars a month, and there's a reason for it. Yeah. I would not recommend that car to my worst enemy. Okay. It's the car itself then, because there's other things that get you. Like you find out, well, there's a termination fee of forty nine fifty, you know, at the end of the lease, a balloon payment or something like that. So that's the other thing. But th in this case, it's the vehicle itself that you have an issue with. Absolutely, yeah. I've t I've test driven just about every vehicle, electric vehicle that's you know commercially available, you know, all the way up to the Tesla Model S to, at the one end and this Mitsubishi on the bottom end and. There's a reason why they're disappearing from car lots pretty quickly because Mitsubishi realized this is not the car for the U.S. market. So, uh, so they're trying uh, to jump them, deal with what you got, and then move on to something else. Basically, is where they're at. Exactly, exactly. So just you know, do your homework on the particular model that you're looking at. Fortunately, there's tons of people on the internet that are you know, really interested in sharing their experience with a particular model. Uh, again, whether it's the high end or the low end, there's tons and tons and tons of information for somebody who's trying to transition into electric vehicles and you know, maybe have a particular concern that they need to research first. Okay, cool. Um, I guess kind of as we, as we wrap up here, uh, for people that are still a little bit concerned, you know, will this, you know, will this work? I mean, there is that apprehension that you were talking about. As as a person that's you know driven one for a while, can you kind of speak to that? Because I guess there's never a proof like the application and use of a technology to prove that it actually is viable. Sure. So what do I hear people nervous about? Number one, uh, there was a big big media stink a while back about how electric vehicles catch on fire. Okay. Um, number one, there's about seven gasoline powered cars catch on fire per day. In the world, <laughs> I know of about seven electric cars that have caught on fire, period, and three of them were people doing ridiculous speeds into really hard objects. Uh, now, the, the most interesting case, in my opinion, was, uh, you know, the, and the media hypes it up, and they call it the Tesla Carbecue, okay? Okay. Where somebody was rolling down the road, and they hit a large chunk of a three-point hitch with the bottom of the car. Now, in a most cars with a fairly thin floor pan, that three-point hitch would have gone up into the driver. But because the Tesla has the battery on the bottom, and at the very bottom of that battery is a very thick metal shield, and I forget what they actually made it at, make it out of, but this three-point hitch, when he hit it and it tried to pull vault the car, the three-point hitch goes up into the battery, punctured one of the 16 groups of cells, The car said, hey, something's wrong here. Pull over and get out, please. The guy had time enough to grab his laptop bag and such out of the front uh, passenger seat of the car, get out, and watch the car catch on fire. Now, only one of the 16 groups of battery cells caught on fire. The other 15 did not. 
which means that the total energy expended in this quote unquote car fire was, you know, a tiny fraction of what would have been expended if an entire gasoline tank had gone up all at once. Yeah, and I've I've seen that and it's not good. And it it tends to go a little bit faster than what you just described. It's sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got to yep. think about this. Um, with a gas vehicle, you're driving around with enough fuel uh, at a full tank to burn down a city block. If you really yep. want to look at it that way. If you took all that fuel, broke it up into half gallons, pitched it around a city block and tossed a couple flares in there, you you're looking at a 10 alarm fire. Exactly. So, the you know, the the idea that battery vehicles catch on fire and no um, there has been some concerns about the charging stations just not being engineered well enough, getting a little bit too hot. I think that is a valid concern, but the, the manufacturers of the charging stations that are designed to go in your garage are uh, realizing that they need to do a little bit better job, and they're doing that. Um, now, you may have heard of the 787 airliner also catching on fire a few times. Uh, that turned out to be a defect in battery manufacturer. Uh, it actually... It's the same company that they're trying to put batteries in the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid. Um, the manufacturing process has been changed to get the defect out. And so, you know, that was a kind of a limited case where, you know, the product itself just wasn't what it should be. Again, I don't think there was any real serious injuries or fatalities in any of the, the 787 airliners being caught on fire either. But that's just, that's me trusting my memory. Now, the other concern that people have is, you know, how long are these batteries going to last? You know, when am I going to have to replace the battery and, and et cetera? Um, we know from use history that the Priuses that have nickel metal hydride batteries often are going over 200,000, in some cases 300,000 miles before the nickel metal hydride pack needs to be replaced. Uh, there's a Chevy Volt out there with over 225,000 miles on it. And in the words of the owner, uh, he's got no noticeable degradation on the battery. So mm. this idea that, oh, you know, you're going to have to replace it in eight years and, and you know, it's going to be $8,000, $10,000 to replace the battery, I think is just completely unfounded concern. Well, who the There's hell drives a vehicle 250,000 miles anymore? I mean, some people do. I've got 170 on my, my Ford truck. But most people are flipping vehicles just in practicality way before that. Why do most people flip a vehicle sub 100,000 miles? It's usually because the gas engines these days are engineered, honestly, to get, you know, 100 to 150,000 miles before having serious problems with them. Um, but with a diesel engine, obviously, you're going to get more longevity, but you're also going to get more longevity out of a plug-in hybrid because the engine itself is only on one-fifth, one-quarter of the time. So, you know, to get to, let's say, 10,000 hours in use, might take 300,000 miles instead of 120,000 miles. So, you know, the total longevity of the drivetrain should be really, really, really good. Yeah, and I think my other, the other reason people have a, a hesitancy, and it, it's why if I decided tomorrow I'm going to go out and get one of these things, I'd be a lot more like the emulate you and get a, a Volt than a Leaf is. I don't want to be stuck on a side of the road. Um, and I think if you're using a, a plug-in hybrid, that can run on gas when necessary, that alleviates a hell of a lot of that concern. Because that's my, exactly. that's my concern with the leaf. Oh, okay, well, it's, it's, it's three times the distance to work in back, so I'll be fine. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've had to go do shit because I was out and about and the wife calls or whatever, and then to think, well, I, either I have to not do that 
or I have to be coming home going, I hope I get there. I hope I get there. I hope I get there. That That's a big concern, I think, for a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people don't get that, well, that's not going to happen with, with you know, a plug-in Prius or a Chevy Volt. Exactly. And, you know, I play the game of can I make it there on a battery because it's a game. It's not a, uh, a serious, nervous issue. Now, the Leaf is going to be most appropriate for somebody that's, you know, in a city, got a high density of charging stations. Their, you know, typical trip is 10, 15 miles max because there's, you know, stores absolutely everywhere, so they shouldn't be having to go out of their way too much. Um, but I think the range anxiety problem is going away very, very, very quickly. You know, number one, we've got Teslas that are doing up to 300 miles on a battery. Uh, the battery technology, like we said, is, is getting better every two to three years. Uh, Chevy's already talking about putting out a 200-mile uh, EV called the Bolt. Um, so as the batteries get better, as the charging station availability gets better, the range anxiety will become a, a moot point. What are your thoughts long-term on Tesla? I mean, Tesla seem to be the people that proved what could be done quick. Uh, power, I mean, they came out with basically an electric Ferrari. That was like, we're going to do that first because if people are going to buy this stuff and have lots of money. They're going to buy it because it's cool. And all this stuff about, you know, it's a golf cart on wheels. It's going to go out the, out the window when we have a car that, you know, you can go up to 170 miles an hour or whatever. And by the way, accelerate and decelerate faster than anything in gas. Um, Absolutely. And, and then they started talking about going into the consumer market and what have you. Have they waited too long? Are they kind of going to become the boutique Ferrari of electric vehicles? Or, you know, because you have in there that you think they can be a game changer. What do, what do you mean by that? So, you know, Tesla was the game changer with the Roadster back around 2008, where they were, you know, really the first people to put enough capacity into a particular car to make it more than just a, you know, an overgrown golf cart. Uh, and I got a chance to drive that Roadster and it is just I mean, hands down an awesome vehicle for going in straight line. Now the downside is they were using the, the Lotus, um, I want to say a lease platform, um, which just wasn't designed to carry that much weight in batteries and weight in motors in those particular places. So they were shoehorning the drivetrain into a chassis that just wasn't appropriate for it. And I turned around with the Tesla Model S, which was built from from scratch to be an electric car and prove the capabilities of that drivetrain, right? The battery is in the floor, giving the car a very low center of gravity. You've got, like I said, instant torque. You've got the computer control for all the traction and um, you know acceleration, deceleration elements. So the the Tesla Model S, especially the performance models, you know, the upscale models, uh, the all-wheel drive models are hands down my favorite car that I've ever driven, period, electric or otherwise. But they're not sitting around waiting for everybody else to catch up. You know, Tesla came out with the superchargers and their supercharger network is um, – very, very complete even before anybody else has figured out uh, how are consumers going to use this, right? Tesla's already putting in those stations. They're working on, as you said, a more consumer-level model called the Model 3 that's coming out. So they're not sitting there just waiting for everybody else to catch up. But I think the most important thing is they understand a car is an experience, right? You don't buy a product. You buy the experience with that product. And so when people have had either glitches with the product itself or, 
they, you know, they understand the life cycle of the whole car in terms of how am I going to use it? Where am I going to use it? What am I going to do with it? How am I going to get service and maintenance? So they're stepping up and trying to take care of the customers in a way that I think traditional automakers are just going to have to, to start doing more, uh, you know, think more like Apple, not like, uh, you know, Ford, really. Well, and on that note, too, like there's some stink here in Texas, and I haven't been following it really closely, so I don't know exactly what's going on. But Ed Wallace, the uh, you know AM weekend radio guy that does the car show, is all up in a tizzy because apparently the Texas legislature is going to allow Tesla to do something horrific, which is actually <gasps> sell cars to people without a dealer network. Like they're just going to sell the car to the customer and take out the middleman. And apparently this is going to end life as we know it on planet Earth. The the, the giant volcanoes will open and engulf all of our vehicles because the great contract with the dealerships has been terminated or whatever, um, which I don't think it's possible for Tesla to have any agreement with a dealer network that they didn't create. So I think Chevy's deal, dealer network agreement is that's between Chevy and their dealers and the Zuzus and Ford and whatever, but... Tesla's Tesla. And apparently this is like possibly whenever I see politicians and the corporate elite pissed off about something, I think it's usually good for mankind, right? So I'm thinking that might be another thing that they may be the first car company to really do to basically say, you know, you can go to Tesla.com, order a car, we'll bring it to your house or something like that. And, you know, why not? Everybody else is doing it. Yeah, exactly. We don't we don't need the middlemen, you know, to do any of the things that, that uh, a large company could do. You know, you look at the National Automobile Dealers Association. I think it's rather ironic that their uh, association is named NADA because that's honestly what I think a dealer does for a product experience is NADA that the company itself couldn't do. Yeah, I think there was a time for the automotive dealership, but I think we've We've gotten there, and we've done that, and now it's time to do something new. And if you think it still works, then don't be afraid to compete with people that choose not to. And I think that's the big thing. Like, I'm not like, let's get rid of all dealerships. I'm just like, if a car company wants to, like, I, I was actually surprised that in 2000, and I shouldn't have been because of all the things government does, but I was kind of surprised this was even an issue. I didn't even understand that the reason there were all these dealerships is there was some sort of regulation enforcing that. Right. It doesn't make sense to me. Why? Why can't I buy, you know, from from David, if you're selling something that I want to buy? Why can't you buy from Jack? Why would government ever force an intermediary? But in, in you know, you mentioned full service gas in New Jersey. You still can't pump your own gas because, God, you know, the world would end and people would lose jobs. Somehow, 48 other states managed to let people pump their own gas. Exactly. So anything that makes for more free market, for more opportunities, more different business models. Uh, and so you see other companies that are emboldened by, you know, Tesla kind of bla blazing that path. Um, you know, there's this Elio three-wheeled car that's supposed to come out. They're trying to do the same thing where you're going to be buying it from an Elio store, not buying it through a dealer. So I, I really think the, the concept of what a car is, how you buy it, how you use it, how you fuel it, all of that's in flux, but I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I'm hoping they do let them sell. I think that I don't think that the reason that the Nissan dealer, or Clay Cooley, or any of these guys that are on TV advertising 
are upset about this is I don't think it's because they don't want to compete with Tesla selling direct. I, I, I don't think they're afraid of Tesla in and of itself. I think what they're afraid of is Ford going, hmm, I see. This might be a better business. I think they're afraid that the other manufacturers that they're currently dealing with would then say, well, maybe we need to do this too. Bingo. The first one to prove that it can be done and prove that the regulations don't need to be there and that the world won't end. Well, that's already here. Tesla's done it. They've done it in quite a few states. And honestly, the, the customer satisfaction numbers don't lie. People like to buy straight from the company, especially when the company stands behind their product and takes care of their people in a way that dealers generally don't tend to do. As we've looked at this whole space, this alternative fuel space, there's a lot of conspiracy theory. The government's holding it back and, and whatever. And I, I don't know that there's any like big giant cabal specifically meeting in a place trying to stop the advancement of this. But like what we were just talking about, it's an example. There's all these groups that realize like if certain things happen, entire segments of the economy go away. Now new ones get created, but if you're holding the hot potato, so to speak, when the You know, the ring stops getting passed around. You've got a problem. How much of the whole, let's move to something beyond pumping oil out of the ground and refining it and creating all this pollution, do you think is being held back by the fact that it w it, in the end it will cost jobs, it will cost businesses, it will, you know, like growth always is painful? I think the people that produce oil, you know, we're talking about the... the really high up decision makers and, and OPEC and everything else are very, very sensitive to the fact that there are these competing technologies coming up. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to not reveal my sources here because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but no problem. there's definitely been um, conscious thought on the part of certain OPEC decision makers. We need to keep the price of oil down mm. so that the, Alternative technologies, which are very cost-effective at $350 to $4 a gallon, you know, worth switching to. Uh, let's try to keep the, you know, the at-the-pump price low enough that people don't have the incentive to switch. That is a very conscious effort on the part of the producers. Now, if you've got enough money to buy some politicians, you can get some regulations that will support your worldview, let's say. But there's also a large history of very, very anti-competitive acts. Um, You know, the, the Chevron Corporation bought out one of the largest patents for uh, nickel metal hydride batteries and tried to keep them off the market for a long time. There's the clear case of oil companies when they bought up all the streetcar lines in Los Angeles trying to get rid of public transportation. Uh, so it's not a shadowy, you know, Illuminati-type conspiracy. It's simply very predatory market practices and very much... We want to keep the customer captive. You know, I'm not going to call it evil, but it's definitely not um, beneficial for the small man. I would say it's survival instinct, right? So if if I if I put you in a little room and I start shooting arrows at you that will kill you if they hit you, but they but they move slow enough you can see them coming and get out of the way, you're going to get out of the way. And if you can figure out a way to return fire and take me out so I stop trying to kill you, right? you're going to do that. So I think in a lot of places, a lot of these new technologies, there's people whose entire livelihoods will literally go away unless they can adapt. And that's why I think, like, I think you're spot on when you talk about like OPEC. 
right? So I don't think, for instance, that Exxon is, is concerned about this as, let's say, Saudi Arabia. Because Exxon is in the oil business, they're in the gas business, but overall Exxon's in the energy business. And they can exactly. adapt to this, right? But they're, you know, 5,000 or 50,000 or whatever it is number of franchise gas station owners that sell Exxon gas. Those guys can't necessarily adapt to this as well. So that's a, that's a pretty big chunk that we don't even think of. Like, The guy with the average Exxon station, he's not the power elite. He's lucky if he makes more money than a good doctor does, if he owns three locations. But collectively, that's an entire lobbying block. And that's that's like an afterthought. That's one you don't even think of. So I think there's a lot holding us back, and it, it's, it's going to take a willingness to understand that nothing worth doing is ever easy, and that doesn't just apply to individuals. It applies to societies. Sure. We've got a, a, let's say, a center of mass of our culture that's very much centered around the ease and convenience of energy delivered at gas stations or whatnot. Um, but we've got these outlying cases of people that are, you know, switching to electric cars, switching to biodiesel, whatever. It's going to move the center of mass away from those old systems. Um, the good news is it represents an opportunity right now for two reasons. Number one, we do have a very local, but I think short-term dip in gas prices which means that a lot of these alternative fuel vehicles are going to go much cheaper because the American public very there's a strong correlation between when the gas prices go up we buy more efficient vehicles when the gas prices go down we forget about it for a little while so therefore these alternative fuel vehicles you're going to be able to negotiate better when you're trying to buy one um, the other opportunity of course is going to be in being somebody that can install maintain deal with these electric charging stations. Um, you know, you've done a podcast a while back about, you know, uh, 22 low overhead businesses. What about somebody who basically goes to a business and says, hey, you've already got all these uh, street lights over your parking lot. Mm -hmm. You've already got 120-volt electric run to all these. Yeah. Hey, I'll put a, uh, a wall socket in the base of every single one of these light poles for 50 bucks a pole, uh, and now we've got – you can put up your signs and say that you're – you know, electric vehicle capable and you can, let's say, advertise in plug share. And sure enough, I personally make decisions about where I go based on can I go there and plug in a car for a reasonable cost. And then I end up eating at the restaurant next door. And so it, it's a magnet for businesses to be able to say, yeah, we're, we're uh, electric vehicle capable here. That's got to be something that's coming more and more. I mean, again, you might only, like you said, I don't remember what you said, but like if I plug in 120, Right, I, I get so much to the hour. What I get? What, 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 what was the number? Five miles, roughly. Five miles. Okay, but okay, okay fine. So I go to have uh, a coffee and a scone with a buddy, and uh, uh, maybe then walk down and, and, and meet my girlfriend and have a glass of wine at the the the, the Riverwalk or whatever. And I'm going to be there for two hours, and while my vehicle's sitting there, ten miles of a capability get put on it. That's probably enough to go home. So I think with that kind or of mentality, enough, yeah. Or enough that I can, you know, pre-charge, uh, you know, pre-warm or pre-cool the cabin. So, you know, with a typical vehicle bacon in the hot Texas electric, uh, Texas mm. sun, you know, you come back to that car and you're, you know, let's just say sweating hey, and sticky and burning thing. yourself on the seatbelt. Versus the electric car where you can say, hey, you know, pre-cool yourself down. It's using electric grid electricity to do that. It's not taking the, the electricity out of the battery, and you're 
sitting in a nice, you know, pre-warmed or pre-cooled car without taking your range away. How much energy does that take as we finish up here? That's something I just totally lost over and didn't think about. But, you know, when I get in my truck, I crank the AC to high. I don't worry about it. I don't care. It doesn't really make that big a difference in mileage. If you drive around with your windows up and your air off, so you think you're saving gas, you're not saving that much. But it is a significant amount of energy. It's just that an in internal combustion engine, right, is is taking energy that most of it would have been wasted. Um, where electric right. and electric vehicles getting direct efficiency. That's part of what makes it work. But it takes a significant amount of energy to cool down. Uh, a cabin in the Texas sun. So how does that affect your mileage and what have you? Sure. So the batteries themselves are fairly temperature sensitive, and the warmer it gets, the more power they can deliver total. So when you get into reasonably hot, you know, 90, 100 Fahrenheit, the extra capacity delivered by the battery is reasonably offset by the air conditioning used. And so you're going to, they kind of cancel each other out. Now, if you're getting up into, you know, 120, 130, you're out in Phoenix, something like that, yeah, it's going to take a, a lot of electricity to bring it back down, and so you may end up dinging your range. The other issue with really, really high temperatures is if the model of car that you have does not have a thermally managed battery, there is a chance that the battery life will be degraded by the high temperatures. Uh, for example, Nissan Leaf is having a real issue with this out in Southern California and uh, Arizona and the hot, you know, hotter parts of Texas where they're just not getting the battery life that they're supposed to because the battery's getting too hot. So uh, in my opinion, if you're shopping for any kind of plug-in, hybrid, hybrid, whatever, uh, a thermally managed battery is very, very important if you live in a hot climate. On a cold side colder you get, the more the battery does not want to give up its last little bit of charge. It kind of holds on to it a little bit. But you also have the incredibly inefficient way of keeping a person warm, which is to heat the air to heat the person. So I can eat an entire battery on a Chevy Volt just from turning the heater up pretty high Fortunately, there's much more efficient ways to keep the person warm, which is conductive or contact heat. So the seat warmers, the seat heaters, uh, you could go so far as to have, you know, one of these little 400-watt inverters and an electric blanket, you know, if your wife or girlfriend gets colder before you do. Um, but the other major thing to do when it's colder is just simply dress for it, dress more appropriately. Uh, and I actually see this in a, as an advantage because I can dress for what the outside air temperature is and not have to layer down when I get into the car and it finally warms up 15 minutes later, you know, and the engine warms up. I'm having to, you know, try to rip my jacket off while I'm driving or, you know, I put on the boots that were appropriate for outside. Now I got to try to take my boots off. If I can keep the cabin temperature of the electric car cooler than what you would in a ICE car, internal combustion engine car, um, I can stay more comfortable without having to layer up, layer down as I'm getting in and out of the car. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. It makes a lot of sense, really. So it, we're not 100% there with this stuff yet, but there's a lot of utility to be gained and a lot of opportunity out there, and I think we're going to see more and more of it happening. Like I said, I think as we build more and more vehicles like this, we're going to have more and more of what's necessary to support them. And I appreciate you spending time with us today and going over this because this is something a lot of people think about doing, but they're just not sure. And you may have helped some people make some informed decisions today. 
Exactly. There's so much disinformation that's been put out by FAUX News, and you know, I, I get people asking me about it all the time, and most of them are just simply misinformed. You know, they don't even know that the Chevy Volt has the gas engine in it. Uh, you know, nine out of ten people probably they're they're surprised that it's a plug-in hybrid. So, uh, all I want to do is really invite people to look deeper into the subject, think about their usage pattern on the vehicles, check out what's available now, but also look at what's coming in the next two to three years because I see just about all the big auto manufacturers jumping on this in some form or another. As the electric drivetrain goes into more and more chassis, I think the the argument against it's just going to disappear into nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I, w I would agree as well. Well, again, thank you for being with us today, David. I, I really uh, appreciate that. And uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we let go? No, I think we've uh, thoroughly covered it. Just uh, don't believe the hype in the media. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, again, uh, I, I appreciate you, uh, you, you being with us today. And with that, folks, uh, this has been Jack Spierko along with David Haight helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.